Hey, Pastor Josh here. Thanks so much for watching our videos. If you'd like more information about Legacy City Church, you can go to LegacyCityChurch.com. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell below. God bless you. We do have a very, very, very special guest speaker. He is a former Navy SEAL. Uh, yes, he also served his country on the battlefield. He also has a best-selling book, Seal of God. He has been a frequent, reoccurring guest on CNN News, Fox News, Anderson Cooper 360. Chad is a leader. He's motivated and he's all about the teamwork. Please, let's give Chad a warm Legacy City Church welcome. Chad. Thank you so much. Great to be here with you all. If you guys have your Bibles, wouldn't mind opening up to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, the passage I will be reading from in just a little bit here. And while you guys are turning there, to kind of familiarize you a little bit with what uh, my team was doing on the last deployment I was involved in, uh, we were out in Iraq and given the task of hunting down men that make suicide vests and those roadside bombs, IEDs. And while we're out there, we're working with this group called the ISOF. It's the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And, and one of our goals with these guys is to simply teach them how to fight their own fights. And so the best way to do that is not only train them on base, but actually go outside that wire and fight side by side with them. And so if you can imagine a whole deployment going by, I'd say pretty good. We've bagged and gagged some pretty bad dudes. We're making the world a better place. And we're coming up on what looked like just enough time on the calendar to do maybe one more operation. And we weren't really sure if the ice officer's ready for us to pass that baton off to them. So we decided, hey, for this final operation, why don't we try and make it a sort of graduation operation? We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up, and we'll be there with them just in case things go bad. So they start from scratch. What's the first thing they need? They need some intel. And so they're hitting the streets, and they find this source. This guy tells them about this man that's an Iraqi policeman. So now we're looking at this guy. It's a policeman by day. Where's that uniform? But at night, back home, as it turns out, he's one of these bomb makers that we're looking for. And so the ISOF comes up with this whole plan, how they want to approach the house, get in, grab this guy, extract. It all checks out, looks pretty good. Uh, but they did have one complaint. They said, hey, listen, we, the ISOF, we feel like we get shot at more than you SEALs do, and we think we figured out why. And so we're kind of curious. All right, what do you think it is? And so they're just convinced. They say, it's the color of your uniforms. We're like, really? The color of our uniforms, not the way we shoot, move, communicate, nothing to do with tactics. You think it comes down to the mere color of a uniform, and they're just convinced of this. And so they had a request. They're asking, saying, look, would you be willing to maybe take off your American-colored uniforms, and for this final operation, we got a pile of ISOF uniforms you guys could put on. In fact, they asked us to strip the colors off of our vehicles, so now we're painting up our vehicles to look like we're all a part of the ISOF. And so we're like, all right, you want us to look like you, to blend in with you, to get shot at more with you. And they're like, yeah. It's like, fine, it's not about the color. So we get the uniforms on. And so there I am standing in the Humvee that night. I'm in that section called the tour. You see it in the movie sometimes, guy kind of part of the way out of the vehicle. And I have the 50 caliber machine gun in front of me. And for those of you that don't know, let's just say that's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. I've got my night vision goggles on. I'm looking through this green little world and just kind of going over this mental inventory, checking off all the things about this night, you know, in my mind. I know my weapon is headspace and time. That means it's ready to go. I know where this guy lives, the plan, how we're going to approach the house, get in, grab this guy, extract. But there's one very unique thing about this operation that made it different than every other operation, and I couldn't help but to think about it. I was sitting there, breathing in that air, thinking, this is it. This is the final operation, which also means I know just a matter of days from now, I'll be back in my hometown, Huntington Beach, California, out there in the ocean. Uh, but here's what none of us really knew about that night, was that we were being set up the entire time to get thrown in the absolute worst circumstances we've been in on this entire deployment as we're being set up on an ambush and suddenly we find ourselves engaging in this night in a gun battle for our lives. And it truly was the team's ability to shoot, move, communicate, and do what we do best as SEALs that led to the obvious conclusion I stand alive before you this morning on the platform, but I think it's worth remembering that it doesn't always work out that way. I think we do need to remember that our, our freedoms are not free, and what are they paid for in? The currency of our soldiers' blood on the battlefield. 
And I would think in a room like this, I mean, is it safe to say that we are all proud to be Americans? Amen. Just to kind of get you thinking a little bit, and I'm hoping to open up your eyes something in the scriptures here that maybe you haven't seen before, but what is it that's so great about being an American? What makes it so great? Freedom. That's at the top. And then somewhere below, like Chick-fil-A, In-N-Out Burger, right? But freedom. And what is so special about freedom? If you try and deduce a little bit here, it's the reality that freedom isn't, it, it isn't free. It's not some built-in default position into life. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes a wake-up call. Sometimes it takes an attack, a 9-11, an ISIS out there, for us to really begin to appreciate the freedoms that we enjoy, realizing they don't come freely, and there are those out there lurking that want to steal, kill, and destroy. This is a pattern that goes throughout history. History doesn't always repeat itself, but Mark Twain, he makes the point that sometimes it certainly does rhyme. And so there have always been brave men and women willing to stand in the gap to fight against that evil. God has used so many through the past in this way. But even if you think in, in modern history, uh, one of the founding fathers, John Adams, he made this statement. He says, you know, your generation, speaking of future generations, our generation, says your generation will never know how much it costs my generation to preserve your freedom. And then he says, I hope you'll make good use of it. And so there are brave men that are willing to stand in that gap, say, give me liberty or give me death. And all too often, that was the price that they paid. And so how have we been living that life, though, that was worth dying for? And that's worth thinking about each day. So like I said, these things, they rhyme throughout history. God has used his warriors, his men, to stand in the gap. There was a battle that was going on back in Egypt that we're going to read about in Exodus chapter 3. And God used his patriot... Moses to give a declaration of independence and it came in the form of what I would call a weaponized message and those words were let my people go there were those that were in bondage captivity slavery there was an evil ruler of that age that wanted to keep them there but God used a man to deliver a weaponized message and it set people free and in a similar way what I want to open your eyes up to is that the same thing is going on today, but in a spiritual sense. There are people that are in the bondage, captivity, and slavery of sin, and so many of them don't even realize it, but God has his patriots today. Every card-carrying believer, and we have a weaponized message that sets captive people free. And what is that weaponized message? It's the gospel message. It's the greatest weapon we have to charge the kingdom of darkness with. And so there is a God of this age that the scriptures talk about in Ephesians chapter 2. That's the enemy of our soul. And so many are under this captivity and they don't even realize it. And so before we get into Exodus chapter 3, let me kind of bring you up to speed. What has happened in the, the first two chapters here? And so we find ourselves in Egypt and Egypt is the land of the Egyptians. But they weren't the only ones living there. And so they are coexisting and some of the people that they coexisted with is the children of God the children of Israel, and everything was going really good for a while. Why? Well, because of one of their own, Joseph. Joseph is the ultimate rags to riches story, right? This kid really grew up under the hands of domestic abuse at the hands of his own brothers, and then they wanted to kill him, and they were going to kill him, and they realized, you know what, we can actually turn a profit off of him if we sell him, and so now he's getting sold literally into human trafficking. He's experiencing it firsthand. And then he gets thrown into prison, all the while, though, he had a loyal heart towards God, God's hand of favor was upon him, and he would go from being in prison to becoming prince, literally second in command over all of Egypt, second in command only next to the very Pharaoh, the king himself. And so because of his success, the people of Israel were kind of riding along on the coattails of Joseph. But just like so many good things in life, unfortunately, this one wasn't going to last. And so Joseph died. And the scriptures tell us that the king that, that knew Joseph, he died. And suddenly now there's a new Pharaoh that's arising. And it says that this Pharaoh, he knew Joseph not. He does not remember uh, this history. And so unfortunately, the people of Israel living in the land of Egypt, they lose their charitable king that they had before. For now, what they've inherited is a genocidal king. I mean, this guy wants to wipe out the Jewish people. And so he decides to go about it by, well... <laughs> 
Here's one point. <laughs> Maybe you guys can pick up on this nuance, but he wasn't the first one to take away, or I'm sorry, California wasn't the first one to take away straw. Because that Pharaoh took away the straw, right, from the people. Isn't that, okay, not so funny. We did away plastic straws, you know. So he wanted to take away the straw to make it so that the, the work that they performed was a lot more difficult. It was a different kind of straw. Um, you guys up to speed here with the, the all right, let, let me just do a real quick trivia question, a little test. Just got to figure out where you're at in terms of biblical knowledge, all right? Then I'll have an idea where to dive in. So quick, all right, Bible's broken up into two major portions. There's the Old Testament and the? All right, uh, there is a, uh, let's see, there is a man that built an ark, and uh, he wanted to escape the effects of the flood. His name was? Okay, so I pretty much got a good feeling of where we're at here. All right, so Moses, we're talking about Moses. He was a little baby boy, and he was given this name by an Egyptian princess. Many of us don't really know that part of it, but he got his name from an Egyptian princess. So this baby boy is born, and his mother doesn't have the heart to kill him. That's what the Pharaoh wants, is all the new baby boys are going to be destroyed, killed. So she hides him as long as she possibly can. Then Mama Bear comes up with this idea. If I just put my baby boy in the Nile reeds, in a little ark, if you will, perhaps the princess that goes down there in the mornings will see him and have heartstrings kind of pulled and she will take him in as her, her own. That's exactly what happens. She sees the boy and she's the one that gives him the name Moses, which literally means to be drawn out of. So he drew, she drew Moses out of the Nile reeds. Here he goes from the muddy reeds to suddenly he becomes royalty. And so now he's living the life of prestige. He's eaten in the king's palace at the king's table. Meanwhile, though, all the children of Israel are still suffering under this backbreaking slave labor. Everything's going good for Moses, though. And what we learn in the New Testament is that Moses thought, he thought that his people would understand that God was going to use him to deliver them. So he began to try and take things into his own hands. And so one day he sees an Egyptian beating on one of his countrymen. And what does he do? Lays hands on the guy takes things too far, winds up killing him, tries to cover up what he did, buries him in the desert, doesn't take more than a, a soft wind to unveil, you know, what he had done. And then he sees a couple of his countrymen in a dispute with one another. And so he's trying to step in. He's trying to play mediator. He's like, boys, what's going on? And so they're looking at him. Like, who do you think you are? Who made you judge and prince over us? What, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? And so suddenly he realizes, oh, no, the word is out. People know what I did. And it's going to reach the ears of Pharaoh. And sure enough, it did. And so now Pharaoh puts a hit out on Moses. And he literally becomes a fugitive. And he is on the run. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. That's where we find ourselves now. So he spent 40 years there living the life of prestige in the king's palace. And now we find him 40 years later after that out in the back of the desert. And so Exodus chapter 3, just starting here in verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So just for a moment here, try and put yourself in Moses' shoes, and maybe you, you can. The feeling of, man, the best years are, are behind. Looking back at how good he had it before, when he was living like a royal, but now look where he's at. He's way out in the back of the desert, performing the most mundane, repetitious job, just falling around some sheep. Maybe many of you feel like you're in that place now, that desert place, just going through a, a dry season. Who knows, who knows what the, this pandemic has done you know, to your life for the relationships that you have with your, your spouse or your children. You feel like you're just really in the valley, thinking the best years are behind in the rearview mirror of time. What I want to suggest to you all is that sometimes going through a desert season, a desert place, is exactly where you need to be before God could begin to use you and take you to where he wants you to be. And there is biblical precedent for this. We see in the life of Moses, it was 40 years he spent out there in this place before God would ultimately call him and use him to deliver that weaponized message, let my people go. It was 40 years that the children of Israel spent out in the wilderness 
before they ultimately crossed over the Jordan River into the land of milk and honey. Forty years they had to spend out there in that desert place before God took them to where he wanted them to be. And there's so many others in the Old Testament that seem to have gone through this old this, this, this desert experience, you think of uh, Elijah or even John the Baptist, what was he known as? Before he had the honor, the great honor of making straight the kingdom of the Lord, preparing the way for Jesus, where was he? Out in the wilderness. And sometimes you might be feeling like, maybe I'm going through this desert land or experience because it's a consequence for something I've done wrong along the way. Maybe, maybe not. Because Jesus was holy and blameless without sin. And where was he before his, his preaching ministry began? 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness before his preaching ministry really began. So maybe being in a desert place is a preparatory place exactly where you need to be before God takes you to where he wants you to be. And there's this great uh, poem, it's anonymous. I think it captures this quite well goes like this. It says that when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods and watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. While man's tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how God bends, but he never breaks when it's man's good that he undertakes. And how he uses whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he is about. And so that's what we need to know, is that God knows what he is up to. Uh, we are that clay. We are that rock. And he's got the hammer and chisel in hand. And sometimes he's chipping away, and chunks are coming off. And we're like, Lord, that really hurt. What are you up to? You just need to trust the master sculptor has an image in mind. And it's not always painless along the way. Christianity is not a gateway to a trouble-free life. But it is through the trials. It is through the scourging. It is through the fire that that forging process really begins. And so just know God knows what he is about. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Moses, in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him. And from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, focus in on verse 4 one more time. What did God observe? God observed the fact that when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, so God's noticing something like, oh, I've got your attention now, Moses. What does the Lord do? That's when God calls him. And so maybe the Lord couldn't have really gotten Moses' attention the way that he did out there in the desert when everything was going so great in the palace. And isn't that the case? C.S. Lewis got this quote where he talks about how God's voice to us in our pleasures, when everything's going great in your life, God's voice, it's like it's kind of hard to hear. It's like a whisper. But... Pain and suffering operates as God's megaphone to rouse a deaf ear. And so maybe God couldn't have really gotten Moses' attention the way that he has him now here. The greater the need, the greater the result. Jump ahead to verse 9. God speaking here to Moses. He says, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so God essentially is telling Moses now, hey, remember that thing that you wanted to do, Moses? Remember how you thought that your people understood that I would use you to deliver them and you gave it a go, but it didn't work out? That's because it was at the wrong time. It was in the wrong way. But that thing that you wanted to do, I'm calling you to do it now. I'm sending you there. And I'm going to send you with a weaponized message. You're going to set captive people that are oppressed. You're going to set them free. And so what was Moses' response? Was he like, all right, let's go. This is what we read, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should send the children of Israel out of Egypt? So we do need to remember at this stage of his life, 40 years out here in the desert. 
And he's probably really feeling like he's living a wasted life in the best years in the rearview mirror. He probably cannot believe that he's getting the call now. He's thinking, God, you should have come to me 40 years ago. I, I had influence. I had a blue check mark next to my name, but they took that all away. You know, I'm a nobody now. I'm just out here in the back of the desert, falling around sheep. And so he felt so unqualified in this moment. But what we need to understand is that the types of people that God uses isn't so much the people with that outward appearance, the types of people that we would often think that's the person right there. In fact, God says that much in 1 Samuel 16. It says that, you know, God says, I don't see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. What does the Lord look at? He looks at the heart. That's the real question. Where's your loyalty? Where is your heart? Where's your mindset? And this is a principle that plays out even out into, I guess you could say, the secular world, the real world. In the SEAL teams, a lot of people have this misconception, like the type of person that is a Navy SEAL must be extraordinary. Extraordinary men go on to accomplish these extraordinary things. And some people are just born and bred. They have the right DNA, you know, for the job. And I would say it couldn't be further from the truth. Our SEAL creed, it goes like this. Speaking of a SEAL, it says it's the common man with uncommon desire to succeed. So SEAL training is a melting pot. You got guys from all different types of backgrounds. I mean, you, you do have the, the people that were former Olympic athletes, professional athletes that are showing up wanting to do this job. And then you got people that all they ever did all their life up until that point was pretty much play video games. And they say, hey, I would like to volunteer to take a shot at it. Well, it's a volunteer program. And if you can make it through the bare minimum requirements to get into the program, then it's all up to you. Just don't ring that bell three times in front of everybody to quit. And so I remember showing up, first day of training, 173 of us all together. Instructor comes walking into the room. He has our attention. And he says, how many of you are willing to die before you quit? Well, that's the mantra of everybody there, pounding our chest, saying, hoo That's our yes. And he goes, great. Well, this is what I want you to do now. Why don't you take a mental picture of the person on your left and on your right? In fact, if you have someone in front of you and behind you, do the same thing with them. So I'm taking weird mental pictures, you know, these guys all around me. And he goes, chances are, if you're still standing here for graduation day, that means each of these guys you just took a mental picture of, it's likely they didn't make it. So do you really think you're the one in that group? And I remember looking around the room thinking, wow, where are these quitters going to come from? You know, like, <laughs> I'm thinking, it's not going to be me. But at the same time, I'm realizing this. All of these guys are saying the same thing that I say, and they say it in the same way. And I haven't seen any quit in any of these guys yet because we've gone through some pre-seal training together. It's called INDOC, where these instructors have beat us down, and we have suffered. And I haven't seen any quit in any of these guys' eyes. So I'm thinking, how far down this hole do we got to go before people start falling off? And so realizing the majority of the room has got to go, I'm just trying to find some of that low-hanging fruit. Like, where are some of the guys that I think will quit? Let me pick some of them off. So I'm looking around the room, and I see this guy, Barth. Barth captured my attention, but not in the sense that I thought he was one of these guys that's going to quit. He captured my attention in the sense that I thought, there's one of the guys that's definitely going to be there for graduation day. Because Barth was extraordinary. I mean, this guy, born and bred to be a Navy SEAL, blessed with that DNA that produced that muscle and that stamina to where there's never a question in SEAL training over who was gonna get first place. We all knew who was gonna get first place, you know, on the run, whatever competition it was. He was so far ahead of everybody else in a league of his own that the question's always looking around like, all right, who's grabbing second place? And so there's Barth, one of the guys that's definitely gonna make it. And I'm catching myself now thinking, what am I doing? I'm not supposed to find guys that are gonna make it. I'm trying to find the guys that are gonna quit. So I'm scanning the room a little bit more, just struggling here. And then, oh, how could I forget? about Alex Gagne. Alex Gagne is the exact antithesis of Barth. This guy is the runt of the litter, the ugly duckling of the class. It is an insult. He is that guy that was the video gamer that just got off the couch one day and decided he wanted to be a Navy SEAL. So it's an insult that he's even here amongst us. How did this guy even get here? So I'm thinking not only is he going to quit, he's the locker room talk. This is going to be the first guy to quit. Well, the irony of it all is that by the time we get to the most difficult portion of SEAL training, which is called Hell Week, where they wind up keeping you up for five and a half days, you get four hours of sleep, that's not per night, that's four hours, that's five and a half days. You're out there in that Pacific Ocean in February, three, four o'clock in the morning, on a regular, like, you are so cold, you look like you're hanging on to a jackhammer. Well, who's amongst the first to quit? 
during Hell Week. Well, it's not this guy, Alex Gagne. Amongst the first to quit was this guy, Barth. The guy that everybody thought he's going to be one that's definitely going to be there for graduation day. And then you can imagine who ultimately made it all the way through that pipeline and became a Navy SEAL, Alex Gagne. The runt of the litter, the ugly duckling of the class, the locker room talk. What does that demonstrate for you? I think what that demonstrates is the truth of this principle of being that common man or common woman with uncommon desire to succeed. And so, so many of us just kind of roll over and feel like we need to play the part. This is who I am in life. Some people are born with, you know, a different pedigree. And they go, oh, I didn't come up in the same household that person got right there. I don't come from that same pedigree. I didn't get the same privileges that person got right there. And you know what? There are certain uncontrollables in life that are true. Even the scriptures say that much in Acts chapter 17. It says that God has pre-appointed our times and our boundaries. So there are uncontrollables. But that's not the controlling influence, especially in a place like America. America's a place where you could literally start born into something at the top and find yourself at the bottom. Or the flip side of that is true as well. Find yourself at the bottom and go to the top. And why is it? Because it doesn't come down to DNA, ultimately. DNA does not determine your destiny. What is the most important factor here? Desire, heart, mindset. And so this is what God's going to get across to Moses here. Moses, I know about your resume, man. I don't need to worry about the past part. Just where is your heart? Check your heart, Moses. What does the scripture say? Remember this 1 Samuel 16. This is about David. Who was David? David was the runt of the litter, the last to get picked on the kickball team, right? When they're looking for the new king of Israel, he wasn't even in consideration in the house of Jesse. He's looking at all the other sons, and then it's like, this one? Little David? And what did God ultimately do with this little David? Well, David was known as having a heart after God's own heart. And what can God do with somebody like that? Use this little David to chop the head off of a giant like Goliath. And so the scriptures say the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. And so that's what we need to be checking with ourselves. Where is your heart? Do you have a loyal heart towards the Lord? And so God... Is going to speak up to Moses here and make a point to him that it is not about those things. Verse 12. So he, God, said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, indeed, when I have come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I think Moses is finally getting around to asking the right question here, right? He started off with this attitude of who am I? And maybe that was really wearing on him because if you remember his own countrymen, that was the last question that they asked him. Who are you? Who do you think you are? And so he's saying the same thing 40 years later. Who am I, God? What's my identity? But now he's realizing that's not the right question to be asking. When it comes down to this, it's not who am I. It's who is my God. That's the right question. And so God is declaring who he is. And now Moses is asking for some special revelation here. Something that has not been received yet. Very interesting. Because he says, when I go to the children of Israel and they, I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, what shall I say? What is your name? They didn't have a name for God at this time. What was God known as? He was always known as the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now he's trying to get some special revelation, like what is the name here? And so the name that God reveals to him is the great I am. And this is one of the most revered names for God, even in Judaism up until this day. The I am. We sing about it. The great I am. This is the name of God that commissioned Moses with a message of let my people go that would ultimately set captive people free. And we know how that all played out. It worked out. Here's sort of the jumping off point and something I'm hoping to open your eyes up to. 
is that this same I am, this same God, has called you and I, just like Moses, to be his patriots, to deliver a message, a declaration of independence, and it's a weaponized message. So how do I get away with saying this same God? Well, if you remember in the New Testament, at one point, the Jews were in a dispute with Jesus like so often, and what they're trying to hit him up on is, what is your pedigree? They're, they're questioning his identity. And they're going on about, you know, the pedigree that they come from, our father Abraham. And Jesus is finally going to get around to letting them know exactly who he is. And I remember as I was preparing uh, this message in Exodus chapter 3, and we've got this significant name here, right? The great I am. I'm trying to think of what are some of the things that, you know, we can extract from this. And then what I remembered was this very name right here is the name that Jesus used to ascribe to himself. You may or may not know this, but during the first century, Jesus' time, Hebrew was practically a forgotten language. And so what happened was is Jewish scholars had come up with a translation that they would use of the Old Testament translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, which just means the 70. They took 70 of the top scholars, and as accurately, sharply as possible, they took the Hebrew text, the Old Testament, and they translated it into Greek so that it was accessible and available for the modern man because Greek was the lingua franca of the day. Everybody knew it. And so what you may or may not know is that Jesus, the vast majority of the time that he quotes from the Old Testament, so he's quoting an Old Testament scripture, maybe the, the Shema, right, Deuteronomy 6, for hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is, the majority of the time is he quoting it from Hebrew or from Greek, from the Greek. The Septuagint was the translation of the day that he would quote from. What is the name for God in the Septuagint in Exodus 3.14? It would go like this, ego, ami. That is the great I am. That is the name that carries so much significance. It is the divine name of God. So I'm recalling Jesus used this very name to ascribe to himself. What a perfect passage to use when you're in a discussion with Jehovah Witnesses. Because Jehovah Witnesses, one of the things they deny about Jesus is that Jesus is God. And they adamantly claim he never claimed to be God. And so you could go to some of the passages like in John chapter 1. Uh, the Gospel of John literally opens up with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then it personifies that how this, this Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son of God. So clearly, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The claim there is that Jesus is God. He's a part of that Godhead. But they'll play around with, you know, the Scriptures, and they'll add a word there that's literally not there. They try and add the letter A. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And so that's the argument they'll bring to you at the front door. You're not a Greek scholar. They're not Greek scholars. You're going to get a little bit of an impasse here, right? They could play linguistic gymnastics and try and add that there and read from, you know, something from, you know, their reasoning from the Scriptures and try and convince you of that. I think that's kind of a moot way to go with them. One of the best things you could do is cut to something that has some context to it, where they can't just get out of it by adding a little A somewhere. And so this is what I'm getting at, realizing that Jesus used this very name of God and he ascribed it to himself. So remembering this, I'm thinking this is perfect for Jehovah's Witnesses. Here's the crazy thing is that the place I was living at, still live at, as I'm prepping this, as I realized Jehovah's Witnesses never come to my door. You know, I, they've always come to the door at other places I've lived at. In fact, in the past, I used to call them to the door. There's literally 1-800. Guys, got me? Okay. There's literally a 1-800 number that you could call to have Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons delivered to your door to reason with them. So I used to do this, like, all the time. And so I'm thinking, you know what? They, they never, never come to my place here. That's so weird, right? This is the crazy, crazy part. I'm literally consciously thinking about this, how you could drop the IM on them, and out the door, knock, knock, knock. I'm thinking, who could that be? So often it's the Amazon gift packages, right, or whatever my wife, you know, ordered. But I'm just thinking, that's got to be Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know, I just got this sense about me, right? 
And so at the time, my son, I was trying to keep him off me because, you know, he was, you know, hounding me and wanting to play. And I had a little bit of time to prepare this. And so I decided I'll hook him up with some candy and, you know, just let him do his thing. And so he's finished that candy. Now the door's knocking. He wants to know who's there. And he is just in the fourth dimension, right? Like he is just... And so I'm trying to open the door, and I don't know if you guys know what this is like. If you have a dog, you certainly know, but some children can be like those little animals. Like, I can't get the door open without him trying to, like, get through. And I'm trying to, like, tell him, like, hey, you know, back up, get away. And so I, I finally crack the door just a little bit. He sticks his head out, and it's Jehovah Witnesses, but I can't see them yet, but I hear them go, oh, what a cute little boy. And he literally hisses at them. <laughs> and I'm thinking... Yep, he's got the gift of discernment. So he goes running out. And so here I am now. I got the Jehovah Witnesses. Literally turned to Exodus 3.14 in my Bible. I'm thinking how great this would be to I am some JWs. And here they are right now. This is meant to be. And so they kind of open up with, you know, uh, they don't believe in hell either, which is very palatable, right? That scratches itching ears. People would love to believe that there is no judgment or consequence, you know, for sin. But we kind of discussed that a little bit, but finally we get around to really the real question, who is Jesus? And so you know you got basically, you got the one that's kind of the, the subject matter expert Jehovah Witness, and they bring their little, like, protege with them that they're training up. Well, I tell them, you know what? Not only do I think the scriptures claim that Jesus is God, I think that Jesus explicitly claimed to be God. And they're like, oh, we would like to see that. And so we go to Exodus 3.14. We look at this name for God. Who shall I say sent me? Tell them, I am, ego ami, has sent me to you. This is the name of God that he's ascribed to himself. And then we go look to John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, in the New Testament, remember, this is the situation where Jesus is in a dispute with the Jews of his time. John chapter 8, just starting in verse 56 here, they're really pressing him on identity. How ironic is that? And so Jesus finally gets around to saying, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? So they're thinking, this guy's 5150. He's crazy. He's not someone that we need to deal with. Like, he needs our help. And Jesus finally gets around to saying it. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego, me. Jesus is taking the name of God from Exodus 3, 14, in the burning bush, that very God that sent Moses with a, with a weaponized message. He's ascribing that name to himself. And what I'm talking about in terms of context that you can't escape here is that look at the following verses. If there's any question over whether or not Jesus was just trying to say that he existed a long time, he's not even yet 50 years old and he has seen Abraham, no, he made it very clear when he said, ego on me, the Jews unmistakably understood that he was claiming to be God because look at their response. What was the response in verse 59? Then they took up stones to throw at him. Now the Jews were very careful about following the letter of the law. They were very strict. They don't just go stoning somebody because it seems like they're a little bit out of their mind claiming to have existed a long time. If they did want to kill somebody, that's they wanted to kill Jesus, they had to catch him on something. And, and theologically, we know why Jesus went to the cross to save his people from their sins. But historically, don't forget, Jesus went to the cross, why? For the accusation of blasphemy. John chapter 10, just a couple chapters later. Verse 32, Jesus answered them saying, I've shown you many good works from my father. For which of them are you going to stone me? They're going to stone him again. Drawing. Then the Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. And so unmistakably, the Jews understood what Jesus was claiming here. Here's what the Jehovah Witnesses have in common with the Jews or the Pharisees of that day. They don't believe Jesus is God. I don't think that's very good company to be in. And so he explicitly declared to be God. They picked up stones for the claim of blasphemy. They can't just stone him for any reason. They understood what he was claiming right there. Well, I remember the, the, the younger sort of like protege, JW, they were like going back and forth from Exodus 3.14 to John 8.58, back and forth. Like, I never seen that before. 
And the uh, older one was like, well, we can see you got your hands full with your kid here, and so we're just going to let you take care of him. I go, no, we got time. I'd love to discuss this more. And uh, they say, well, we'll come back sometime. I'm like, I'm hardly ever home, so maybe we could arrange it. Why don't you take down my number? They're like, yeah, sure. So I start giving them my number. I notice they're not taking it down. I'm like, well, did you get it? They're like, yeah, we got it. I go, okay, read it back to me so I know you got it. And they're like, we'll see you later. They never came back. But here's the real big takeaway, and this is where I think it gets very applicable to all of us, is that this same I am, the one that commissioned Moses, he commissions you and I as well. There are people nowadays that are living in bondage and captivity, slavery to sin, just like they were under the captivity of the Pharaoh of that age during that time. He was the oppressor. The scriptures are very clear that there's an oppressor of this age. And this is global war on terrorism. It says that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. He's going around like this roaring lion. He's seeking whom he may devour. His mode of operation is very much like a terrorist, right? He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. It's you and I, though, that have our eyes opened up to what is going on. And it's you and I that have been commissioned you are God's special forces. The scriptures call you a soldier for Christ. And I think we've really lost focus and attention on what our mission is as Christians while we're here on earth. Number one, to know God. Once you know him, though, we're supposed to be taking part in this battle. We're supposed to be advancing the kingdom. We're not supposed to be living our own private, little, quiet, privatized lives of Christianity where this is just my thing and, and each person kind of has their own thing. Jesus is very clear. You are a light. And he says that you're, when, when there's a light, you know, a city on a hill, it can't be hidden. Nor do they take a light and put it under a basket. Are we taking our Christian light and putting it under a basket and hiding it and just being privatized? He says, no. You put the, light on, you put the lamp on top of a lampstand. And what does it do? It gives light to all who are in the house. Then he says, let your light so shine before men. They may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's one positive side to light. We also have to understand that being a light, also, it'll be like smoke to the eyes to some people. They will be repulsed by it. But this is not supposed to be a surprise. Jesus says that in this life you will have trouble. He says all those that desire to live a godly life will endure persecution. So Jesus makes the point that the light has come into the world, that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. It doesn't come to the light unless their deeds should be exposed. All you have to be concerned with is be that light. Don't put it under a basket. Don't privatize it. We're supposed to be shouting this from the rooftops, from the mountaintops. Jesus commissioned you and I. It's the great commission to go into the world and make disciples. And so he's given us this weaponized message and we are up against the ultimate terrorist. Think about it this way. You know, suicide bombers, Navy SEALs have been given this duty and this task to do what? To sabotage the plans of evil men that have intentions of harming other people. So you think about the motivation of a suicide bomber. A suicide bomber, they understand they're going down. But they're not content with just taking their own life, are they? What is their goal? Take out as many people with them as they possibly can in the process. But if Navy SEALs are effective at what they do, they sabotage the plans of an enemy like that and they preserve human life. In such a similar way, think about the ultimate terrorist, Satan. He is strapped with a suicide vest. We've read the back of the book, haven't we? We know he's going down. But he's not content with just that, is he? What does he want? He wants to take out as many people with him as he possibly can in the process. But you, operating as God's special forces, if you're effective at what you do, you sabotage the plans of the enemy of our soul. How? By spreading this message that destroys and foils his plans. One of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. But Christianity is the story of how our rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and now he's calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. Do you want to play a part in a campaign of sabotage? Do you want with some divine justification to be a saboteur? We're sabotaging the plans of the enemy of our soul. And how do we do that? 
with this weaponized message. Moses had his let my people go message, and God has a let my people go message, a declaration of independence for you and I to be spreading. It's the gospel message. It's the greatest weapon that we have to charge that kingdom of darkness with. It's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody, right? So maybe just a final word on, you know, motivation in terms of, you know, why is it that we should be getting out there and doing this? One, from someone that you wouldn't expect it to come from. And then another, maybe kind of uh, something that comes out of the SEAL teams, but it's very applicable uh, for us as Christians. So number one would be from an atheist. This atheist, very well-known magician, illusionist out in Las Vegas. He's all over TV. He was on that program, The Apprentice. Uh, Pendulette. So Pendulette put this video out online. You can go check it out sometime if you want to get the full context of it. It kind of gets emotional, which is interesting. Uh, it's called Gift of a Bible. And what he kind of gets around to pointing out is here he is. He's an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. But he talks about he has no respect for any person that claims to be a Christian and isn't out there spreading that message. He questions, do you really believe it then? And so this is part of the transcript of what he says. All I do is just flip a synonym here. He uses the word proselytize, which just means to evangelize. So he says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make things socially awkward. He says, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe? How much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that. Then he gives this practical example. He says, I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And then he says, and this is more important than that. This is an atheist saying this, the gospel message, which I don't believe, but you claim you believe, this is more important than that. And so he asked that question. Yeah, how much do you have to hate somebody, to believe it's true and not share that with them. May I suggest to you that he just gifted us with one of the greatest tools in terms of breaking that conversation open. I know why a lot of us don't share, because we're, we are worried about coming off as socially awkward. We are worried about coming off as offensive. We don't want to be that person that gets a finger pointed at us being called, you know, judgmental. Who do you think you are? You know, oh, you're on a pedestal, holier than now. That's not what we are, right? Christians are, we're just, we're beggars trying to tell other beggars where to find some bread. But unfortunately, there is this stereotype. Sometimes we can come off that way. I say this is one of the greatest gifts because that disarms that whole conversation. I've been in those situations before where I'm thinking, all right, I'm feeling like the Lord wants me to share the gospel with this person, but I got a feeling that it can get very volatile right now. You know, like getting my hair cut not too long ago, and this girl was just very open about, you know, her sexuality and being with other women and very foul mouth. and the Lord's like, share the gospel with her. I'm thinking, she's going to cut my ear off, Lord. Like, <laughs> let's at least wait to the end here. <laughs> and so, oh, I just felt so tense, like I'm supposed to share with this person right now. And then I thought, well, familiar, Pendulette, most people in the world know who he is. And so I go, hey, have you ever seen that show, The Apprentice of Pendulette? Oh, yeah, 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 I know who he is. Like, you know what, he put this video out online called Gift of a... And so what he gets around to saying, though, he basically says, like, you Christians out there, I don't believe what you believe, but how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not share that with them? And she kind of stepped back for a moment. She thought, she goes, yeah. And I go, look, because I don't hate you, because I care about you, I'd like to share some things with you. It just completely disarms the situation, right? And so I remember she just kind of sat back and just listened, and the people that were there cutting hair just all kind of listened, and it got quiet, but I got it all out, and then I paid. I go, all right, well, see you later, big clubs, huh? All right. <laughs> and I remember it was one of those places where the, the, the glass uh, you know, doors outside, I walked the wrong way, and I'm like, and they're staring at me, and I, I go back, and I, I'm walking back again, like, oh, this is so weird. But... The point is, is that I have used this so many times in situations like that, in situations with family members. It, it, because I don't hate you, because I love you, I want to share some things with you. What are they going to say to that? They're going to hear you out. Thank you, Pendulette, for that, and thank you for motivating us. And so we're compelled to do this, number one, because our Lord commissioned us to do this. Our assault leader wants us to go into the world and do this, but then we have atheists like Pendulette telling us that we should do this. And one little final motivation for you all 
and it comes from the seal creed, it goes something like this. It says, in the worst of conditions, I'll rely upon the legacy of those who have gone before me to steady my resolve and guide my every deed. In other words, we will retell the stories of guys like Michael Monsoor or Scott Helvinston, these Navy SEALs that paid the ultimate price. These are the stories as SEALs that we retell before we go out on an operation. I've been there before where the Master Chief is looking at us saying, all right, boys, on this particular one, there's a chance not all of you come back on this one. And so that can kind of get you thinking the wrong way. You start thinking about self and kind of thinking about, do I have all my affairs in order? And so in order to kind of clear the mind and get your mind focused on the right thing, it's in the worst of conditions, what will I do? Rely upon the legacy of those who have gone before me to steady my resolve, to guide my every deed. So we retell those stories. That Master Chief might go, but hey, before you go out, don't forget about Michael Monsoor. Michael Monsoor is a Navy SEAL, is a local guy. And he was up on top of a roof providing cover for other SEALs that were out on the road. Well, from this unknown location, an, an insurgent came running up, throws this hand grenade on the roof, hits Mikey in the chest, falls to the dark. And if you can imagine, he had an exit just a step and a turn away. That grenade, not his problem. He can save himself. But here's the rub. There's other SEALs that were on the roof with him providing that cover, and they didn't have time to get up and make it past a grenade. And so Mikey, in a split second, selfless act, he just yells to these guys, grenade so they could take some form of cover as he jumps over the top to cover this grenade and it went off and he absorbed the blast the wrath of this grenade on himself his body took that shrapnel the metal and unfortunately he died but because of what he did every single one of these other guys on the roof they all lived so you can mark these words down in history greater love has no one than this one that lays down his life for his friends that's the legacy of michael Mansoor. You know, my, my mentor, Scott Helvenston, uh, he was killed in Fallujah, and it was all videotaped and put all over the media. He was one of those private contractors with Blackwater, you might recall, as they videotaped ambushing the vehicle, ripping him and three others out of the vehicle, lifeless, and mutilating their bodies, taking rope and wrapping around their legs. They went dragging them through the streets of Fallujah, and they strung them upside down from the Euphrates River Bridge, set their bodies on fire as they chanted over and over in Arabic, Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. One of the last things he said to me on the phone before he went over there was he's talking about making a difference, going over there, perhaps it could make a difference. And so he's an example as well, as those that have laid down their lives for the sake of freedom. Greater love is known than this one that lays on his life for his friends. And so that's, as Navy SEALs, we rely upon the legacy of those that have gone before us but in a more practical, personal sense for us as a church, as God's soldiers for Christ, there's a legacy we have to look at that ought to motivate us to go forward into the fire as well. And that's the legacy of our Lord. The legacy of the one that spoke those words of greater love. And consider it this way, if you haven't before, just as Michael Mansoor absorbed the blast of a grenade, why? So others could live. Let's not forget that Jesus at the cross, he absorbed the blast. Not of a hand grenade, he absorbed the wrath of our sin upon himself. Why? So we could press on and live with him in eternity. Remember that grenade is not Mikey's problem. He could have saved himself. The exit was just a step away. It's always the others that were caught in the crosshairs of that one. Sin was never Jesus' problem, but he covered it for us so that we could live on and press on. And as my friend Scott killed and hung from that bridge, but ultimately for freedom's sake, I'd suggest to you that Jesus, he was killed and he was hung, wasn't he? From that cross at Calvary so that we could be set free from the eternal consequences of our own sin. So greater love has no one than this one that lays on his life for his friends. You can see it in men like Mike Monsoor and Scott Helvenston. And then Legacy Church, look at the legacy of the one who spoke those words, none other than Jesus of Nazareth. That's the proper perspective of our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And a final thought here, you know, the scriptures say, for he, speaking of the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us that we might become the righteous of God in him. That might is there for a very significant reason. Again, it's not one of those default positions, not built into life. Ultimately, there's two different types in the end. Those that bow their knee before God and, and say, God, thy will be done. And those that refuse to bow their knee, their knee will be bent. But they refuse to bow their knee and, and God says to them, thy will be done. If you don't want anything to do with God, he will grant you your wish but if you do want that right relationship with him and you do see the love that he displayed up there on the cross, we love him because he first loved us. And you say, you know what, my, my, my love for him outweighs my love for this, this junk, this sin, and I am, I'm ready to disassociate. 
and put my faith and trust in him, throw myself upon his mercy. Jesus paid the penalty of our sin in full at the cross, and it's so significant that he rose again from the dead. And what that did is it vindicated him. He was no blasphemer. They could try and perform capital punishment for the accusation of blasphemy, but God vindicated him by rising him from the dead, and he also validated his claims, like ego on me, God's stamp of approval, authentication, and other unique claims like, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only way. And so God didn't owe us a way. Anyway, thankful that he gave us Jesus. But we got to do something with it. And so he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteous of God in him. But for those that do turn from sin, put their faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, believe he rose again from the dead, the reward is great. He'll remove your sin. He'll remember it no more. Far away as the east is from the west. And then you become part of the fight, setting other people free. To know God and to make him known, that is our purpose. Amen? Let's pray together and, and maybe open up. Thank you. Maybe an open up an opportunity for anyone here that just is not in right relationship with the Lord right now. We can get that straightened out too. So Father, we just come before we thankful for uh, this, the ability to get together, the ability to see other faces. And Lord, we're just so thankful for so many gifts that you have given us, the, the gift of life. And, and we remember in the scriptures how we are to be thankful always. So Lord, we're just thankful for your son, Jesus who made a way, even though we have done wrong, even though we have turned our back on you, even though we have disappointed you greatly, we understand that you don't want to point a finger at us, you don't want to rub our nose in any shame, but Jesus came here on this rescue mission to make right what we have done wrong. So we're thankful for him going to that cross and being a hero, performing the greatest act of love, paying our penalty, that should have been us up there, but he loves us so much stepped in to pay for us. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would give uh, just the, the strength and the courage for anyone here that maybe doesn't have that right relationship with you. Maybe come walking in here realizing they've been playing the part of a prodigal. That, that is the label on the outside of the bottle, Christian, but they know the content on the inside does not match up. And they want that opportunity to come back home like that prodigal, you know, the love of the Father threw himself upon his son, kissed him on the neck and said, go and slaughter the fatted calf. And so, Lord, I just pray for anyone here that might have been living that sort of wasteful life and they want to come back home and they want to be used by you. Lord, I pray they understand that the enemy would love nothing more than to stand in their way, nothing more than to be exactly what he is, the accuser, and accuse them and say, it's not possible. You can't go to that well again. You've done too much wrong. Lord, I pray they would understand that there is no amount of wrong that they could ever commit that it could outweigh what Jesus did at the cross. And so just like Peter, who had such a bad night, such a bad time denying the Lord, cursing he didn't know him, when he encountered the risen Lord again, Jesus simply asked him, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord. And immediately he was commissioned, go feed my sheep. But they would understand there's not some on-ramp program. Jesus isn't going to put them on. Uh, some type of program where it's going to take them a while to get back on track. No, immediately commissioned to go out there and make them known. So maybe you're here and you just feel like you're, you're not right with the Lord. You know you've been living that life. If you stood before him right now, it wouldn't look too pretty and you want to get things straightened out. I'd love to lead you in a prayer. This is a prayer of commitment. This is a prayer of just declaring your allegiance, your loyalty, your heart to the Lord. This is a prayer of saying... I'm sorry for my sin, Lord. I turn from it. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the penalty of my sin in full at the cross and rising again from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death. Put my faith and trust in you, Savior and Lord. If you would like to do that wherever you are, I just ask that as you repeat this prayer that you would say from the heart, that you would think about what you say before you say it, and then it will be meaningful. And so if you're prepared to do that now wherever you are, just repeat these words out loud after me. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but you died on that cross for me and rose again. 
I turn from my sin now and I ask you to be my Savior and be my Lord. Thank you for loving me and dying for me and help me to follow you from this moment forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. For those of you that prayed here, for those of you that might be watching on a stream, I just really encourage you, if you meant those words, you know if you did, most importantly, God knows if you did, then you have his word on it, another, another man's word on it. He remembers your sin no more. Removed as far away as the east is from the west. And now it's time for what? Remember, once you know God, while we're here, make him known. That quote one more time enemy occupied territory that is what this world is but christianity is a story how our rightful king has landed you might say this guys and now he's calling us all to take part in that grant that campaign of sabotage you all are saboteurs here to put a dent in that kingdom of darkness amen real quick out there i got a shirt and there's some question about what does the frog mean i've gotten all kinds of questions about that frog like is that one person's like, that's part of the curse, you know. Why are you putting that on a shirt? The frog? And I'm like, okay, that's not the reason. All right, in the SEAL teams, we're known as frog men. So we wear a frog. You might be able to see this better on the back. It's a skeleton, though, what we call a bone frog. And so in the SEAL teams, we wear a bone frog to honor and remember fallen frog men. So it has those words, greater love is known than this one that lays in his life for his friends on the back. Intentionally, no scripture reference. Why? Because if you wear that shirt out here in L.A. and you got John 15, 13 on it, anyone that's intrigued by the frog that might want to ask you about the frog, they see that John 15, 13 thing, they go, oh, nope, not stepping into that one, one of those God shirts, right? So no reference put there, but it is Jesus' words. They'll ask you about the frog. You get to share with them. Look, at this represents seals that have shed their blood for your earthly freedom. And they go, wow. And then they see the words. They're like, I like those words. Who was that? Sounds familiar. Is that like Socrates? Or? It's like, nope. Let me tell you about the Savior. As these guys shed their blood for your earthly freedom, this Savior who said those words shed his blood for your eternal freedom. Here's the response. It's practically scripted. I've heard it so many times. I could say it for them. They go, I never thought about it that way before. And so it's actually a great evangelistic tool. It really opens up their eyes. And then remember that ambush that we're talking about there for a little bit, and I didn't really get around to how that all played. You guys want to know how that all played out? We're out of time, so you're going to have to get the book. It's in the back. I'd be happy to sign it for you. All right. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you having me. Amen. Thank you, Chad. Yes, let's give him a round of applause. Thank you.